Thank you, music team. By the way, music ministry is one of the sign-up sheets, so if you have a talent there, either in singing or an instrument, make sure that you sign up on the list outside there in the foyer. Today is our ministry fair, and it's nothing cool or it's not about trying to sound awesome with a ministry fair. It's simply saying, these are the opportunities that we have for you to serve in. And we have needs. Some are new because of where we're at. And some are old needs that we just need more people to help out. So I wanted to bring a message on using your spiritual gifts. I think there's a lot of confusion in the church about that. We're hoping that people will sign up and want to serve in these different areas. And so it's a good time to revisit this. I visited a bit when we preached through Ephesians. And I want to return to it and incorporate some more passages elsewhere in the New Testament. And we're talking today about exercising your spiritual gifts. Now normally I'm preaching through a book of the Bible, but we're taking a few weeks here to just look at selected scriptures, to look at theological topics. Lord willing, in October we'll start a new book of the Bible, and I think we'll be in that book for some time. But until then, we're bringing selected scriptures, theological topics, and we're talking about what the Bible says about various things. We've talked about the purpose of the church. Last week, we looked at just the Lord Jesus Christ. As our first service in this building, we want to start off the preaching with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this week, I want to look at what we're to do because we're saved by Christ. What we're to do with one another in the church. There's a lot of bad teaching about spiritual gifts out there. Some churches completely ignore them. The paid staff do everything. You expect them to do everything. That's what they want. Uh, Sometimes that's not what they want, but they still get that anyway. So there's no mention of spiritual gifts. Others have have taken some gifts and and overemphasized them and made you do survey after survey trying to figure out what yours is. Others have twisted the meaning of some of these gifts and created their own views on it. We want to always look to Scripture. What does the Scripture say? What does the Bible say about spiritual gifts? And that's really all we can say about it. We can try to use some words to explain it better. But we can't add to the Bible. We can't add spiritual gifts to the Bible. And we can't add extraneous meanings to the spiritual gifts mentioned in Scripture. So instead of, you know, making you fill out a survey when you join the church. Because I always got the wrong spiritual gift, it seemed like. It's sort of like in high school. They give you those gifts. Or at least in in those days, they would have a counselor sit down with you. And I always got something I really didn't want to do. It was like working with my hands, which I can fix a thing or two, but that's not really where my interests lie. And I always ended up, you know, plumber, carpenter or something with the counseling surveys. Well, it's kind of like that in the church surveys that I've taken in previous churches. I always end up with a spiritual gift that I'm not at all interested in. And I'll talk a little bit more about how to determine where your interests are as we go along. But let's ask today, what can we learn about exercising your spiritual gift or gifts? Because often you'll have more than one. Everybody has one. Sometimes you'll have more than one or or some shades of different spiritual gifts. And you only have these because you're saved by Christ and put in the church. I have to start off by saying that because sometimes people get all interested in the, the actions of the church and the spiritual gifts and we forget that it's only this way because Christ set it up this way. He told us in the Bible, this is how it should be. Remember, your Lord Jesus Christ saved you, saved you out of your sinful life, saved you out of your destination where you were going to hell to be punished forever for your sin. Jesus saved you if you're a Christian here today. 
And he's now given you something to do. He's given us as a whole church to take the gospel to the world, to proclaim the gospel, to baptize believers, bring them into the church, and teach them to observe all that he's commanded. We're not just to be sitting at home by ourselves, looking at our navel the rest of our life, waiting for heaven. We're to be active. We're to be doing something. There's a mission to go out, but there's also a mission, a command here to serve one another in the church. Because Christ died for you, you can now do that. These are spiritual gifts that you didn't have before you were a believer. And now you can exercise them. You can use them to bless others. So let's just start off with the first point here. Spiritual gifts proclaim the work of Christ. They proclaim the work of Christ. Now I'll tell you what I'm not saying with this point. I'm not saying that that's how you evangelize. Just by using your spiritual gift. If it's the gift of evangelism, then yes. If it's the gift of teaching, then yes. But I'm not saying every spiritual gift, you're somehow proclaiming the gospel. There are people out there who say that, you just live a good life and everybody will know you're a Christian and suddenly hear the gospel through your actions. No, you need words to proclaim the gospel. And you back it up with your actions and you show people. That's not what this number one point is about. It is as you serve in the church with your spiritual gifts, you are saying something about what Christ did. And that's what the Bible teaches. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. And we will look at that together. Ephesians 4 Verse 7, Paul makes an astonishing claim here. He says that we're proclaiming something about Christ. We're proclaiming the work of Christ. Not everything he did, but some very important things that he did do for us. And he did for all those who believe. Ephesians 4, 7, look at this. But to each one of us, to each one of us, now he's talking about gifts here. That's where he's headed. So to each one of us, Every single believer has been given a gift. That's where it's all going to tie in to each one of us. Every one of us has been given a gift. A spiritual gift. And often more than one. And it's been measured out by Christ. You see how he says, To each one of us was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Nobody's been left out on this. You can't say, Well, Pastor, I know you're going to go into the list of gifts in a minute. But I just don't have one. The Bible says each one of us. If you're a Christian, you have one. And maybe you're still working on figuring out what that is. But he says each one of us has been given something. And it says grace was given. That's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 4, 7. Each one of us, grace was given. He's talking about the spiritual gifts. So that's clear through the context. If you read all the way down through the end of this section, all the way through verse 16. He's talking about spiritual gifts. So what kind of grace is he talking about here? It's not saving grace. That's what we receive the moment that we're converted. That's God's saving grace as he changes our heart. He enables us to believe. He enables us to repent. That's what theologians call saving grace. There's also sanctifying grace. I mentioned that in the prayer today. There's sanctifying grace. That's the grace God gives us every single day to grow in our Christ-likeness. But this is something else that Paul often uses to describe his own ministry. If you read 2 Corinthians, for example. And this is ministering grace. Grace just means an undeserved gift that's been given to you. You really deserve the opposite. You really deserve life 
in prison forever and ever because of your sin. But grace means that God has given you the opposite. He's given you his house to live in. He's freed you from jail. He's cut off the chains. And he's given you grace. He did that in saving you. He does that every day in in your sanctification. And he also, Paul says, is doing that. He's giving you his grace as you serve others in the church. Grace was given. And it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ received one gift. He received a huge treasure. A treasure trove after battle. And now he's handing out the treasure in proportion. He's handling, he's handing it out. He's measuring it out to everyone in the church. That's the analogy that Paul is using here. In other words, we don't get to determine what gifts we have. He's measuring it out. It's his gifts he's given to us. He's measuring it out to each one of us. We don't get to pick. We don't get to force our way into this. These are Christ's gifts. He is sovereign. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's best for his church. He knows how to mix and match the gifts in every church for his glory. So when you use those gifts, you're proclaiming that Christ has given you grace. Isn't that what Paul says here? Each one of us, grace was given. We're proclaiming that when we use our gift. Not not with our voice, but with our actions. We're saying, look what the Lord has blessed me with. An opportunity to serve and use my gifts. We're making a statement about Christ and his body. He's also uh, said that here that we're proclaiming Christ's victory when we use our gifts. We often just think, you know, I'm serving others and that's great. And that's what the Lord has called me to do. But you're showing others something about Jesus. Look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The word therefore is connecting it. He's not changed the subject here. He's connecting it to verse 7. Christ has measured out gifts. And so you're, you're using those to proclaim the grace that he's given you. But you're also saying, well, he's a victor. He won the battle. That's what gives him the right to proportion out these gifts, Paul says. He quotes from the Old Testament here. He, he's using the Old Testament here to show that Christ has ascended. And when he won that battle, when he won that victory, he won the ability, the right to give these gifts. When a king goes and he wins the war, he takes spoils home and he gives them to his warriors. He gives them to the people back home. He gives them to the households back in his home country. And so the king would come back in ancient times and he would take all of this treasure down the street. For example, the emperors in Rome, they would have a long parade. That's how parades got started. And you would show all the captives that you brought back. And you would show all the treasure that you brought back. And Paul's saying, that's what it was saying in the Old Testament even. When he ascended on high, he brought back all these captives. He went out and and took captive us and he brought us back and he brought all this treasure to give us. The king has conquered at the cross. His enemies have been dispersed. They've been wiped out. They've been killed in a spiritual sense. The kingdom of the earth is in the hands of the Messiah and he has started the great work that will bring in his millennial reign. He's already won the victory. He's already won the battle. He now owns all of it. He gets to say what happens in his church and in the whole world. That's why gifts are so important in the church. 
You see, Paul's saying this is a military battle. This is something that Christ went out, he conquered, he won. Now he's given you something, make use of it. Make use of it, Paul says. It's a blessing to the church. And so it not only proclaims the grace that that Christ has given us, not only proclaims that he's a victor and he led us back as captives and he, he saved us and he's giving these gifts out, but verses 9 and 10 here, it talk about how it proclaims his ascension as well. Paul goes further. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. I take that into the tomb. He came down. He became a man. He took on flesh. The son of God did. He's the perfect God man. He died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. The lowest place you can go in the tomb. And then he who came down, he who descended also went up far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This is deep theology. When you're serving, when you're using the gifts that that Christ has given you, you're saying that he's ascended, that he reigns over all. This is a lot higher theology than we often think when we talk about spiritual gifts. So that's really the, the background. That's teaching us what we're doing as we use our gifts, as we exercise. We're proclaiming the work of Christ. Not everything he did, but these main points that Paul is bringing up here. Well, now let's look at the spiritual gifts. What are they? What are they? They're meant to be studied and used in the church. That's really the simplest way I could say it with point number two here. I want to give you the list, a list of the gifts that are active in the church today so that you can learn about them. There's a lot of misunderstanding about these gifts. There's a lot of, uh, of things that are thought one way or the other about what these mean. And it's good just to have a Bible study on these gifts. Let's just list them out. Let's talk about them. And there's different number of gifts, depending on who you ask, depending on who you read. Some people even joke and throw in special gifts like the spiritual gift of shopping, spiritual gift of eating. It's sort of a joke, but everything kind of gets lumped into a spiritual gift. You know, whatever I like to do, that must be my spiritual gift, playing golf. A spiritual gift of fellowship at the golf course. Well, maybe you can exercise your spiritual gift at the golf course, but playing golf is not a spiritual gift directly. Let's look at 1 Peter 4. And Peter gives us the broad categories here. Go with me to 1 Peter uh, near the end of your Bible there or towards that direction. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. And Peter is encouraging those who are reading his letter as he sends it out to the churches to use their gifts, even amongst tribulation, even amongst all the pressure that the world is putting on Christians. He's saying in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold of the grace of God. There it is again. God has grace. He's given it to us. It's manifold. It, it's just beautiful. There's, there's many facets to it. And we need to be good stewards of it. We need to use it wisely. A steward managed the household well. He managed the finances. You need to be a good fund manager of God's grace. It's like a mutual fund manager manages money well, hopefully, and he grows the value of that fund. God has given you all that you need in the Christian life and he's given you a gift to serve others. And Peter says, manage it well. Use it. 
employ it. And here he gives the two categories in verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. That's the goal. Glorifying God through Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, touching on this idea of glory and dominion. Christ has the power to give us these and to help us use them. But notice what Peter says. Two categories. What are they? Speaking and serving. Every spiritual gift, every spiritual gift falls under one of those. You either have the ability to speak, and we'll talk about what some of those are, for the glory of God, speak truth, speak God's truth, or to serve. This has the idea of a more physical service, using your hands, using your physical body to serve others, using your finances to serve others. So as we think about these, I want you to keep that in mind. They're speaking and they're serving. So how many total are we talking about? I think there's about 18. There's about 18. Some people say 19. Some say 20. It really will depend on the gifts of prophecy that once were used in the church. How many of those you want to separate out? But I would say about 18. If you read, uh, Dr. Robert Thomas wrote a great book on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's a little commentary. And in the back appendix, he gives some wonderful definitions and lists all of these out. In fact, you'll, if you re- read his book, you'll notice I'm using some of the similar language as I describe these gifts. So let's go back to Ephesians. I should have told you to hold your, your place there. Ephesians 4. We'll start there, and we want to list the gifts. What are they? What do they mean? And ask yourself as we go through these, is that where my interest is? Is that where my desire is? And is it, is it a godly interest that I have? I don't just want fame. I don't want to be noticed for my service or my speaking. But has God really put a burden on my heart for these? Ephesians 4. We're back there. <clears throat> And Ephesians 4, picking up in verse 11, he begins to list some gifts. They're also offices. So these are what we call gift offices. They're, they're an office, they're a position, not a paid necessarily position, but a, a position in the church leadership. And they're also a gift because you can't just elect yourself into these offices. This isn't like the President of the United States running for election. This is somebody that Christ has given these gifts to. So Ephesians 4, 11, And he gave some as apostles. He gave some as apostles, and then he goes on and says prophets. So he's, he's given us an order. The apostles in the early church, that's number one after Christ. Christ is gone. He gives the great commission to the apostles. They're in charge of teaching the faith, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches. Then after them and ranking here are the prophets. And then the evangelists, because they go out. And then some as pastors and teachers. So you see, he's giving a list here. Not a complete list. You have to go to other books to form the complete list. But he's given a list of gifted offices. So let's look at these. Apostles and prophets here. Apostles and prophets were in the early church. They were gifts that were part of the foundation of the church. An apostle had to be appointed by Christ directly. They had to give evidence that they could do miraculous signs, that they had the miraculous gifts. 
and they were directly appointed by Christ. In other words, he showed up and he told them, you're an apostle. And then after that, he wasn't doing that anymore. So we don't have apostles today. And we teach here, it's the same with prophecy. Prophecy was in the early church. It meant speaking the direct words of God. Before the Bible was completed, there were prophets in local churches. You didn't turn to 1 Corinthians or Romans 8. You didn't have that. You had the Old Testament and some books of the New Testament were being written. And you might have a prophet there or more than one who could speak directly for God without error. There are also many other miraculous gifts that are mentioned. This is where it gets into the number of gifts, right? There's the gifts of healings mentioned directly, miracles, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues, utterance of knowledge, and utterance of wisdom. So you can go to 1 Corinthians 12 to look at some of those. We often talk about prophecy, and even today you hear about the gift of prophecy. But realize there are many different shades of the gift of prophecy, like utterance of knowledge. This is uttering knowledge that God had given you directly. Utterance of wisdom. Uttering certain wisdom sayings that God had given you directly. But let's go back in Ephesians, and I want you to see why we teach here that these have already passed away, that they were in the early church, but not today. It's not because we don't like our our charismatic brethren necessarily. It's not because we don't uh, think that charismatics are saved. We just go to this verse here and and others, but I'll just, Ephesians 2.20, I'll just show you that one. He's talking here about the church. It's God's household. And it says that God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He's the first part of the foundation that was set in place. All the apostles line up with that as they're building the foundation and these early church prophets. And there's the foundation. It's been laid. When they put the foundation to this building in place, isn't this a great building, by the way? So blessed. Now the carpet's in. Things are getting finished and painted. It's a blessing to us as a church. But when they put this foundation in, did they continue to lay another foundation and another foundation? Paul's making an analogy. If you read through Ephesians 2 here, he's talking about a building. He's talking about a house being built. And they've laid down this foundation. And now all the saints, all the Christians, all the believers are like bricks getting stacked up on top of the foundation to build the edifice, to build the household of God. So since you only lay a foundation once, I would argue from this passage that apostles and prophets have passed away. They were the early foundation. Now the scripture has been completed. Now the scripture has been completed. We can go there to see what the prophets would have told them back then as they were speaking for God. Now we have the word completed speaking for God. So setting those aside then, all the miraculous gifts, they're important to study. They're important to learn. They're important to be able to talk with people today about. But that's not what this sermon is necessarily about. Setting those aside, I've got nine gifts remaining. Nine that I'm going to list for you that we teach, we believe, that are active in the church today. So so here's where I want you to be thinking about where are my desires, where are my interests? What's the Lord laid on my heart? What have other people told me that maybe I'm good at? First of all, we're still in Ephesians 4.11. He gives some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists. Number one, evangelism or an evangelist. Now, we all should be evangelizing. But not all of us are as good as others. Not because a person desires more to evangelize. 
if they have the gift, they will desire that more. But it's because God has gifted them with that ability more than others. They love it. They want to tell people the gospel every chance they get. You've been around some Christians like this. If you're not an evangelist, if you don't have this spiritual gift. And it's like everyone they see, they want to talk to Christ. They want to talk to them about Christ. They want to tell them about the gospel. You do it throughout your life, hopefully as a Christian. You tell others. You should be doing that. You're joining with your church to do that. As we might go out in groups or or go out together to do that. But these are people who love it. And not only that, here's how Robert Thomas defines it. He says it's primarily a ministry of conversion. It's not just that they're telling people, but they're actually seeing a lot of fruit from it. He says it consists of an unusual ability to persuade the lost people to place their trust in Christ. Hence, it directs its attention primarily toward the will of the person receiving its benefit. They're focused on the will. They're they're putting godly pressure on the person to come to Christ. And they're seeing a lot of good fruit for it. That's the gift of evangelism. Now, that doesn't mean that we can all sit back and say, well, there you go. The evangelist can handle evangelism. We already went over the Great Commission. That's to the whole church. The whole church is to participate in this in whatever way that you can and whatever way that God enables you to do it. But there are some who show really good fruit when they do this. And you probably know some of them. You maybe been around some. They often end up leading evangelistic ministries in the church. Secondly, pastors. He says he's given to the church some pastors here, he says. Christ has given pastors. Pastors aren't a made-up position. It's, it's not as if some guys got together and just said, you know what, we're going to run the church and we're going to come up with a name. We're going to call ourselves shepherds, pastors. No, that's in the Bible. Here it is. He says pastors. It's basically a shepherd. They're called elders in other places in the Bible. These are those who pastor the church, pastoral care for the sheep of God. They oversee the church. They lead the church. They teach. They pray. The Bible says that they direct, they lead, and they protect. Just like a shepherd would. Protect. That's important. If you ever end up in a church where your pastor is not protecting you, the pastors, the elders are not protecting you from false teaching, they're proclaiming false teaching or letting it come into the church, you should approach them, do it gracefully, and if they do not see the error, then you should find a church that does protect the sheep. Go with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. And here's how Paul describes the protection aspect of a shepherd. You probably know that shepherds should teach. That many shepherds will end up preaching as well. But this idea of protection has really fallen by the wayside lately. And if you have this spiritual gift. It's not just whoever we have today are elders and that's it. God is always raising up more men and showing them their gifts. Sometimes they've been Christians for a long time. And suddenly they realize, I'd like to teach. I'd like to preach. I'd like to be an elder. So here's how Paul speaks to the elders here in Acts. He's being taken to Rome to stand trial. And he's coming through this area. So he calls them to him, the elders in Ephesus. He says, come and meet me. I want to give you a message. I want to exhort you. I want to encourage and admonish you to do what I say here. Acts 20, verse 28. Here's one of the things he tells them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Be on guard for yourself. Watch your own doctrine in life, he's saying. 
But also you're responsible for protecting the flock. You need to watch over them. And he says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who gives these gifts? Christ. Who, who operates and acts through you to do these? The Holy Spirit. And he has appointed, the Spirit of God has appointed these overseers, these shepherds, these pastors, these elders, whatever term you want to use. It's various terms in the New Testament. And he says, they're to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's a scary thing. Before you think, men, before you say, you know, I, I'm called to be an elder, realize you would be saying you're called to shepherd and protect the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That can be frightening. That can make you fearful, but the fear of God is a good thing. If you're called, then you'll eventually uh, want to do it anyway. But just remember, we are called as shepherds to protect the church of God. He says in verse 29, I know that after I leave, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He says, look, when I'm gone and I'm not here as an apostle, there's going to be people slipping into the church. They look like regular good Christians. They look like good members. And they're going to stir up trouble. And they're going to twist things. And it's going to be perverse. And it's going to be evil the way they do it. They're going to try to draw people away after them. That's how false teachers work. They slip in. They get your ear. You listen to them. You befriend them. And then eventually the next thing they're saying is that we need to go somewhere else. We need to leave a true church that's proclaiming the Bible because something's wrong. And that can be a various list of things. But a shepherd has to protect. Now what about pastor qualifications? That's key, isn't it? Don't we need to look in the Bible? That's in 1 Timothy 3. We won't go through those. But it gives you the moral qualifications. It is... The gift of all these that we're looking at, it's the one that gives the most qualifications that a man must meet to be a pastor, to be an elder, to be a shepherd. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You can read those. And they're all moral. They're all about your lifestyle and how you live and your holiness level, except one, the ability to teach. That's another gift that we're about to look at. But an elder has to have the ability to teach and all these moral qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3. Here's how Titus puts it. Uh, the teaching ability is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. The teaching of the apostles. The teaching of Christ. He can't contradict what Christ says, in other words. An elder can't. So that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You exhort, you teach the truth, you teach doctrine, you encourage people to follow it, you build them up, you also correct them when needed, but you also refute the people who come in and contradict true biblical teaching. That's a pastor, that's an elder, that's an office gift. He also lists in Ephesians 4 here, the teacher, number three, teacher or the teaching gift. It's not the same as a pastor, sometimes people see it as the same, the pastor is a teacher, yes. But there are also teachers that are not pastors. So there's a big group, let's say, of teachers. And from that, you will often see men arise that become elders, that become pastors. They, they not only teach, but they take on an additional role there of shepherding. But what is a teacher? What do they do? Well, this is important. If you want to teach, or you're sitting in a class learning from a teacher, or you're listening to a sermon from somebody who has the teaching gift, 
that teacher needs to be able to grasp the truth, to arrange it, and to present it. The truth of God's revealed word. It's not enough they just get up and talk. That's not a teacher necessarily, just because they have the gift of Babylon and on. They need to be able to understand the Bible first, then turn around and give it back to you in a way that is understandable, in a way that makes logical sense. This is why the teaching gift is sometimes difficult. It's difficult to discern. You might think you have it, and you get up to talk the first few times, and nobody knows what you're saying. And maybe that's because you haven't learned how to do it better, or maybe it's because you don't have the teaching gift. It takes time. The church has to hear it and recognize it. And the more you hear somebody, the more you know if they have that gift or not. Hopefully they're growing if they do have it and getting better. But they need to be able to grasp the word, grasp the word understand it in other words, and then organize it and teach it to you in an effective manner. The emphasis here is on explaining. Just explaining. It doesn't have to be a long list of applications. Just somebody who understands it and can explain it. In other words, they've got to be able to understand the text, systematize it. In other words, put it together and communicate it to others in a meaningful manner. You've probably heard some teachers. You've probably read some books where you're like, I have no idea what this guy is saying. I've certainly read commentaries like that. I'm studying a passage and I read this commentary. And I don't know where the guy just got all that. He doesn't show me where he got it. I don't know how he got published. We want men and women who teach children, and women who teach women, to be able to understand it first, organize it, and then present it back in a meaningful way, in a meaningful manner. But remember, there's a warning here for teachers in the Bible. James chapter 3. James always hitting us back and forth, punches to the gut. James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now these aren't, this is not just teaching your kids at home. You say official teaching positions in the church. Not necessarily paid. Just you teach a class, you teach a Bible study. Be careful. God's gonna go through a stricter judgment with you. Now if you're saved, he's not, he's not talking here about the judgment of hell, the rewards judgment. But he's going to look more closely at your doctrine if you call yourself a teacher. Let's go over to Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, and you'll see here's another list of the gifts here. I just want to read the passage. You'll see some we've already covered and some we're about to cover here. Romans 12, 3 through 8. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. For through the grace given to me, this is that ministry grace. Paul's been giving grace to go out and minister to others and teach them and be an apostle. I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Sometimes we pat ourselves on the back for our spiritual gift. Especially if you have a speaking gift. You're up in front of people and it's easy to get puffed up. It's easy to get prideful. But even serving with our hands, with our money, we can get puffed up. We can think we're better than others. And Paul says, don't think that. Don't think more highly of yourself, but to think so as to have sound judgment. As God has allotted to each a measure of, and there's an article there in Greek, the faith. God has allotted to each a measure of the faith. For just as we have many members in one body, so we're one body together as a church, all the members do not have the same function. You are not all pastors. You're not all teachers. 
we'd be in trouble. Everybody would just be talking and nobody would be learning. You're not all servants. You're not all uh, help. You don't have the gift of helps or administration or leading. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There it is again. God has given us different gifts, different grace gifts. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And then he starts to list them. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, which we're about to look at, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So he's just given us more of the spiritual gifts. So let's look at those. Exhortation. What is that? That's coming alongside believers and encouraging them, if that's what's needed. Or admonishing them. This is a a stronger encouragement. Correction. Comfort or strengthening. You're coming along and they have a problem in life and you know what the Bible says. And you're going to tell them they need to obey scripture here. Maybe that's in a gentle way, and an encouraging way. Maybe they're sinning in their life and you say, stop it. Look at this verse. And you tell them, you basically preach a little sermon on how they ought to obey scripture. The focus is on application of the Bible. Exhortation. Biblical counselors have the gift often of exhortation. If you were to meet with Frank and you're telling him about your, your, your sin pattern and struggles, at some point in that discussion, and often every single time you meet with him, he is going to tell you what you should stop doing and what you should start doing to obey Scripture. All because you've been given that ability in Christ. And he's going to remind you to look to Christ and follow Christ's likeness. That's exhortation. And often people think, well, this is just being harsh. Exhortation is harsh. And it can sound like that sometimes, especially if you're in sin and don't want to do it, or or you're not used to hearing someone speak that straightforward to you. But we all need to be told to stop sinning and to obey the Lord when we're drifting, when we're following our own desires. All right, so that's the speaking gifts. What about preaching? That's not listed. Well, preaching is a combination. Preaching is teaching and exhortation. To preach, you need to be able to explain the scripture so people can understand and then tell them to do it, to obey it, to follow it. That is exhortation and teaching Make up the preaching gift. Let's move on to serving gifts. Most of these out here are either, most of them are serving, but there are a few that are teaching. The serving gifts are definitely needed in the church. They're forgotten about. They're overlooked. People don't often recognize the serving gifts like they should. Or they think the paid staff should do all of it, all the teaching and all the serving. So the fifth gift, the fifth one I've listed here, serving. It's just serving. It's a serving gift, but it's specifically the gift of serving or also helps. Romans 12, 7, if service in his serving. What is, what does that mean? What is the gift of service? It's simply helping others wherever temporal or physical needs arise in connection with the church's ministry. It's not just going out and helping your unbelieving neighbor, but you see a need in the church and you have a desire and you seek to fill it and you try to fill that need. And it's often a physical need. It's often a need Uh, That we have in this life. Not necessarily a spiritual need. You're trying to take the burden off someone else. And put it on yourself. You're trying to help out the church. Either as a whole. Maybe work on the building for example. Or individually. These people are sick in our church. Which we do have some right now. They need help. They need food. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to take enough food. So they don't have to worry about cooking for the next two days. 
and feed their children. That is a serving gift. You take the burden off someone else. You remember Peter's mother-in-law when Jesus healed her? What'd she do? Is immediately when she was healed. She didn't sit around and say, Jesus, please, you know, just, just keep teaching me. She got up and served them. She got up and served them food. The same word there. It's, it's our word for deacon. It's related to that. It's the verb form, diakonos, or diakoneo. It's about serving the physical needs of others. People that have this, they have an alertness. They know. You know, when you're standing around in a group, and there's one, maybe more than that, but one person who says, what about so-and-so? And they just go off and find that person and help them. And you're like, man, I wish I would have thought of that. That's a great idea. They are in need. They do need my help. These are servants. These are helpers. And there's a lot of them out there. You might think, you know, that's not very spiritual. You know, serving in the nursery doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Mowing this property doesn't sound very spiritual. The Bible says it is. You're helping others in the church. You're serving others. And the Bible says it is spiritual. Now, maybe these people aren't sitting around you know, thinking about superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism and John Calvin versus Martin Luther, that's okay. They've been given other gifts. Their gift isn't to sit around and think about theology all day and teach it. Their gift is to serve the church with their hands, with their bodies, even with their minds in that sense. All right, number six, giving. Giving. He who gives, Paul says here in Romans 12, he who gives with liberality. Now, we should all be giving. This is like evangelism. We should all be evangelizing, but there are some people who love to evangelize. We should all be giving to support the, lo- the work of the local church, but there are some who love it. There are some who love to give, and they give as much as they can, and they don't want anybody to know about it. They give anonymously, or they give in such a way that it really blesses the church or missionaries. Here's how it's defined. A specialized ability to invest material substance. It may not be money. It may be just resources of some kind. In spiritual undertakings. So as to reap the maximum spiritual dividends. It's like evangelism. We all go out and we tell others about the gospel. But those with the gift seem to have more people listening and converting to the faith. Well, these people with the gift of giving, they just know intuitively where to put the money. I put so much in my local church, and I really want to support missions, for example. And that missionary has a blessed ministry. It just seems to all work out because God has providentially lined it up. They have a unique ability to invest in God and in Christ in the church and the work of God in this world. Number seven, leading and administering. These are all pretty quick here. They're they're often easy ones to understand, but we need to talk just a bit about leading and administering. He who leads with diligence. A leader is somebody who leads a group of people. Your elders need to have this gift or at least a shade, a bit of this gift because they're leading the church. But it can be anyone. It doesn't have to be an elder. Somebody who leads a ministry in the church, for example. A special skill here, an administrative direction. Some of us couldn't organize something if we tried. Others of us love it. And we love spreadsheets and we love to break it all down and look at the numbers. Think about where that says about the future. I mean, if you get Scott Mitchell's um, updates financially every quarter, I mean, he's got it all broken down. And to the elders, he's got all these graphs and charts. It's wonderful. Leading, administering. 
Heads of ministry often have this. Elders need to have this. Number eight, mercy. Mercy. This is really kind of the opposite spectrum of exhortation. Mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness, Paul says in Romans 12, 8. It's a specialized form of helps that directs itself in particular to those experiencing some kind of distress. Some kind of misery, pain, anxiety. These are often misunderstood as people who are, you, you think they're too soft. You know, you'd rather just just light them up with a sermon on what they need to do in the Bible. People with the gift of mercy don't think like that first. That's the gift of exhortation. Those with the gift of mercy want to come alongside. They want to put their arm around you. They want to pray with you. They want to console you. And they want to do it, Paul says, with cheerfulness. Because you're in pain. You're anxious. You have misery. They're the ones you turn to when something sad has happened in your life and you need comfort. Lastly, number nine, faith. The last gift I'll mention is faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 mentions this. To another faith by the same Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith. He's not just talking about faith in Christ or the doctrines of the faith. He's talking about a specialized gift of faith here. So as to remove mountains. And he goes on to say, If I don't have love, I am nothing. What is faith? Don't we all have faith? Well, we do if you're in Christ. But he's saying here that this is divine enablement to trust God in all the details. You know when you doubt, and you know if you doubt a lot. A person who has this spiritual gift of faith has very little doubts. They just know whatever happens, God's going to work it out. And they don't mean it cliche. They actually fully believe it. The rest of us are wondering what we're going to do about this. and we're, Oh yeah, we know God's in control, but and we've got this list of things we're going to do. These people, they just trust that God's going to work it out in the details, even when the outcome seems uncertain. Even when the whole world seems like it's going to hell, this person is trusting in God no matter what. And they help others. They're the people that you run to when you want to be encouraged by their faith. So how do you know? And we'll just close with this and, and do part two next week. But uh, let me just close with how do you know what your spiritual gift is? How do you know? Do you take a poll of the church and ask everybody? Well, we kind of do that, I guess, when we appoint pastors and elders, don't we, and deacons. We kind of ask for your feedback because we want those gifts to be recognized by the church, by the church body that's being served. But that's not how you do it. You don't necessarily take a survey. You just ask yourself, what do I enjoy doing? Of those things that are listed out there, of the gifts that I just mentioned, what do I enjoy? What makes me want to get up and serve the Lord and serve the church? What do I have a passion for? What do I really enjoy? Ask your spouse. They'll often tell you. What do I like to do in the church? And maybe I'm not doing it right now, but I'm always wondering what's going on over there. And I'm always checking it out. I'm always asking questions. But you know, if you don't even have a passion or desire, and you know you're a believer, and you know you're supposed to have a gift, but you don't know what it is, just pick a place to start serving. And you find out if you like it sooner or later. And then if you don't, then you pick another place. And eventually the Lord's going to reveal that to you. He's going to show you what your true desires are and what your spiritual gifting is. Fill in where there's a need. You don't need to sit around and just sort of all decide in five years of all the things here. Just fill in, and you'll know. Ask those closest to you. Ask your spouse. Ask your friends. Ask your elders. Ask people in the church that you know. Get confirmation 
from others. Everyone gets a gift and some get more than one. And sometimes you have one main one that you just love and there's some other gifts that are in there, but you really want to do that one thing. The question is really not, do I have a spiritual gift as a Christian? That's not the question. The question is, am I using it? Have I really sought to understand what they are and find out what mine is and use it to serve the church? I'll just conclude here with 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Here's what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, and then he, here he goes, he lists, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. So he's listing what's going on there and that day with the spiritual gifts. But that's how he starts it. You are Christ's body and individually members of it. The hand needs the eye. The eye needs the hand. We need to function as a body. This isn't about patting yourself on the back. This is about serving. This is about loving one another in the church. And you're going to love it often. I mean, there'll be challenges when you're serving the church, but you're going to love serving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, there are days when it's hard. There are days when being a pastor and an elder is hard. But if God has set it on your heart to do it, if it's your spiritual gift, then you're going to reap spiritual benefits from it. So my prayer for our church is that we will see everyone, every member and everyone who wants to join and be a part of this church, serving in some way in the church, using their spiritual gifts. What would it be like if the whole church was always serving one another and using all the gifts that God has given? What would that do for us? How would that bless us individually? Let's pray that the Lord would do that now. Lord, thank you so much for your teaching in Scripture. It guides us. We often want to make up our own definitions of things and we want to go wherever our mind might take us, but you, you center us. You remind us that we're in Christ. You remind us that we are the body here of Christ. And you help us to realize what these spiritual gifts are. Thank you for the teaching and scripture. Help us all to want to serve one another, Lord, whether we have a speaking gift or a serving gift. Let us give of ourselves for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us give of ourselves to support the church. Lord, make this a place that shows your glory as we serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.